0: You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of the closing plenary address, which was given by Professor Mary louise Coolahan from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled, Reportage, Rhyme and Religion, How to Drum Up a Reputation in Early Modern Ireland. very much for the invitation um, to speak in such exalted company and thank you also, I'd like to take the chance to thank the organisers for a really great conference. Um, And the final thanks, thanks to those of you who stuck with us to this late stage in the conference. Um, I've tried to put in funny stories to keep you awake. Um, But I'm going to start off with a a character uh, called Dorothy Moore. Um, writing in, uh, to Dublin from Utrecht in 1640, the Dutch humanist scholar Anna-Maria van Skurman opened up an epistolary acquaintance with Dorothy Moore on the basis of her existing reputation. She wrote, "'I am delighted to have heard about you and your reputation. "'I thought that no clever woman had remained in England "'after the death of Jane Grey and Queen Elizabeth. "'So, exalted company, "'but might offend some nationalist sensibilities.' Um, And I am determined, after hearing about you, to establish contact between us for the sake of wisdom and exchange of knowledge. Now, Moore, whose brother was Edward King, the subject of Milton's elegy, Lycidas, um, was originally born king. Um, She married Arthur Moore, the youngest son of Gareth Moore, the first Viscount of Drogheda, in the 1620s. Now, the question of how exactly she developed this reputation... Uh, one that stretched beyond Dublin, beyond Drogheda, even if associated with England rather than Ireland, um, over to Utrecht, is an intriguing question. More was included in uh, a work published in 1639, um, Johan van bio Biobibliography of Eminent Women. Um, I'll give it a go. Van den Vnemenheit des Vraufhéliken geslacht. Uh, so my apologies to any Dutch speakers in the room, um, It's a compilation of the kind that became more and more popular as the 17th century went on and as you go into the 18th century, uh, a compilation of bibliography of eminent women, And this one on the excellence of the female sex. And Moore was included in this. She was one of the exemplar of uh, excellent women. Um, and this is a picture from the frontispiece which... I think it's kind of interesting, given that you've just got the single unique woman on the pedestal surrounded by men in the frontispiece. But the point of the book is meant to be enumerating the many, many exa- examples of wonderful, uh, excellent women. Um, so, interestingly, going against the grain there in the, the um, frontispiece. So, Moore was included in this, which was published in 1639. Um, Carol Powell, whose brilliant book, The Republic of Women, uh, has a chapter on Moore, um, speculates that Vance Suermann initiated this contact on reports from her own mentor, the theologian Gisbertus Voetius, uh, who was also based in the Low Countries. We now know much more about the ways that Moore was to go on to build and extend her intellectual reputation. Um, she ultimately moved to London and then the Netherlands. Uh, she exploited the network and the scriptorium that was operated by Samuel Hartlib. Um, but all of that information, all of the stuff that we know about how she extended her reputation occurred after this letter, after the letter that Van Heurman had written to her. Um, so what I'm interested in really is how she had acquired, how she developed this reputation, uh, a reputation that breached the boundaries of my uh, talk. It's beyond. Early modern Ireland. Um, And the paper, what I'm talking about today, really emerges from the work that I'm doing with the research project. It started last year in July 2014. um, Uh, There's currently six members in the team, uh, as well as myself. There's Evan Burke, who may still be here. He was here yesterday. Um, uh, And then five postdocs, Erin McCarthy, Felicity Maxwell, Emily Murphy, Sajed Chowdhury and Mark Empey, who's probably familiar to regular attendees of this conference. Um, And we've got three new members starting uh, in in the next few weeks. Brona McShane, who's sitting up at the back here. Um, Wes Hamrick and Joanna Kavernatu, who's going to be starting a PhD. Okay, so just in brief about the research project and why it's got me thinking about reputation. Um, it's fundamentally an evaluation of how women's writing was received and circulated in the early modern period in the English speaking world. Um, the key questions it's asking are how did texts by early modern women circulate? What were the circumstances determining their transmission? Which female authors were read? So, very basic questions. Which female authors were read? Who read them? How were they read? And then, how did women build reputations as writers in the early modern period? Um, And finally, then, trying to think about how that might be gendered. How did gender shape ideas uh, about authorship in the period? Um, And I think there's some some very obvious ways in which these questions are informed by the kind of debates around public engagement that uh, Jason and Mike and um, Brendan were talking about earlier on today. Uh, We have, as scholars operating in the current environment, we're increasingly pushed to think about measuring and quantifying intellectual impact Um, And those kinds of debates inform this project, too, in terms of trying to think about what impact, in inverted commas, might mean in the early modern period and how it might be measured, how you might look at it from a a larger scale, trying to get at the bigger picture uh, in the period. So that's kind of where this question of reputation is stemming from. To become known requires either asserting a claim on one's own behalf Or the circulation of second or third hand accounts of one's actions, one's roles, one's beliefs, one's positions. So what frameworks were available in early modern Ireland to those who were wishing to establish a reputation? And specifically here, what I'm talking about is frameworks that were available to those who were not movers and shakers. Okay, So those who weren't members of the elite. Uh, My examples today are all women. I had hoped, I think, when I uh, gave you the title to include a few men. But, you know, men get a lot of attention in the early modern period as it is. So we'll stick with the women for today. Um, But by definition, of course, most of these women, even elite women, weren't movers and shakers. So what I'm trying to investigate is what are the paradigms, what are the ways in which one can become known or build some kind of a reputation uh, in this period. How did reputation work? Um, And my hypothesis really today is that it worked by uh, firstly adhering to a particular social identity or a particular allegiance, subsequently gaining recognition among a cohort of what we might term fellow travellers by addressing shared frames of reference or shared terms of belief and gaining recognition by doing that, by conforming to the shared terms of belief within that community. Um, And then having one's reputation further promulgated uh, by one's peers. So I want to begin with the frameworks that were available to women for establishing a reputation um, and addressing the key terms of my title, uh, Religion, Reportage and finally Rhyme. And I want to end up with Rhyme because it's particularly interesting in thinking through the matter of reputation in relation to questions of fragmentary evidence, the survival of the record and how we can interpret fragmentary evidence. So to start then with religion and to return uh, to Dorothy Moore as one example, Um, religion of any persuasion was probably the greatest facilitator of reputation for early modern women. If we think about Dorothy Moore and what we know post the letter from Anna-Maria van um, the bulk of her known letters mark her efforts to forge a very international network through engaging others with her concerns over the potential for a public role for the godly woman. So she starts writing to, she extends her epistolary acquaintanceship by writing to others to find out that one of her preoccupations is how can I be of public service? How can I be of good? How can I have a public role as a godly woman, as a Protestant woman? One example of this is a series of letters that she writes to the theologian Andre Rivet, who is then based at the University of Leiden. Um, and the, her initiation of that correspondence, her Sustaining of that correspondence is on the basis of this very religious question. That's, that's the, the excuse. Um, it's the same with her published correspondence with Lady Vanilla um, and with John Jury, who was later to become her husband, this question of how can I be a, a public intellectual as a godly woman. So in that case then you've got the intersection of gender, public service and godliness. Um, And that helps us locate religion, uh, or helped her locate religion, as the route of entry into networking and into reputation. Of course, from time immemorial, the Catholic Church has sanctioned the honing and commemoration of female reputation through sainthood. But the counter-reformation imperatives of the early modern period also facilitated the preservation of authorial reputations internationally and in translation across Europe. Probably the best Irish example, uh, about whom I think I'm always speaking, uh, is Mother Mary Bonaventure Brown, uh, the Clare, whose writing survives in her Chronicle of Irish Clares, uh, which currently exists in English translation in the Monastery of the Clares in Galway, um, but also by report, and this is the reputation thing again, by report in a Franciscan bibliography um, of writings published in Madrid in 1732, in which the, the writer, the bibliographer was trying to pull together the Franciscan families of writings, um, the Poor Clares being the, the sister order to the male Franciscans, um, and in this uh, bibliography, uh, Father Joanna San Antonio describes ten further works by Mary Bonaventure Brown of hagiography, theology, and history. There are numerous English examples of the Catholic Church facilitating female reputation in this kind of way, and. Um, The large-scale martyrological history published by the Spanish Bishop of Tarazona, Diego de Yepes, um, the Historia Particular de la Persecucion de Inglaterra, um, which was published in Madrid in 1599, includes Elizabeth Sanders's account of the Bridgetine nuns' expulsion from Sion Abbey in England and their travels across Europe. Um, it also includes uh, the work of Dorothy Arundel, who's um, currently her, her writing is being reconstructed now by Elizabeth Patton in Johns Hopkins University. Arundel wrote an account of a martyred priest. Um, Father John Cornelius. Um, and that's translated into Spanish in Dieppe's uh, bibliography. It's also translated into Italian by Daniello Bartoli later in the 17th century and Latin. It's reprinted in Jesuit marty- martyrologies right into the 19th century. Another English example is Elizabeth Willoughby, who also wrote an account of a martyred Jesuit of the moment of his execution, Hugh Green, in 1642, and within three years that was being translated into Latin and circulated around Europe in this kind of Jesuit marty- another Jesuit martyrology. So these are women whose writing survived and was circulated precisely because of its conformity with martyrological paradigms and counter-reformation imperatives. And that also shapes their reputations for posterity as defenders of the faith, as good Catholics. Religion then was a way in, but as we know, the easiest way to drum up a reputation is controversy. Elizabeth Avery arrived in Ireland with her husband, Timothy, a Cromwellian soldier, about 1651, already with a controversial reputation as a religious radical and a published author. In Scripture Prophecies Opened, published in 1647, Avery speaks as a prophet, she subscribed to the belief to the doctrine of progressive revelation, the idea that God would impart further discoveries to his people as the second coming grew closer and closer, and she placed herself at the very center of this drama, laying claim to secrets that had been hidden even from the apostles. So pretty controversial stuff. Um, As you can see from the title page here, it was presented as three letters that were uh, originally addressed to Christian friends. And in this pamphlet, uh, she offers her vision of the fall of Babylon, the dissolution of heaven and earth in the last days and the final resurrection. The end was calculated as occurring in three and a half years time, as it happened exactly the moment that she arrived in Dublin Make of that what you will. Um, but her prophecies uh, immediately provoked a hostile reception on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. She was the only woman to be named amongst the false teachers cited in Atlas for the Times, published in 1648. Uh, She was subsequently named a heretic. Her brother, Thomas Parker, who was a Presbyterian, he was the founder of Newbury in Massachusetts, so he was one of the Puritan founders in New England, um, was moved to castigate her publicly. Uh, So he published uh, the copy of a letter to his sister, Elizabeth Avery, in 1650, in which he attacked her on theological and patriarchal grounds. So he he tells her, Your affectation and writing of assurance did not formerly so well savour. And your printing of a book, beyond the custom of your sex, doth rankly smell. But the exaltation of yourself in the way of your opinions is above all. So it's the seeking of recognition, it's the grasping for reputation, the exaltation of herself in the way of her opinions is what's the problem here. It's looking for an independent reputation. Now this example, I think, emphasises the potential subversive, subversiveness of the female prophet's claim to experiential authority, and, but also the rigidity of the religious parameters determining good versus bad reputation, To adopt the shared terms of belief, the shared discursive paradigms, as Mother Brown did, as ultimately Dorothy Moore did, was to invite positive reputation. But their transgression, as with Avery, opened up opprobrium. Conformity with established parameters of identity in order to establish a positive reputation was also a matter of playing the game breaching those conventions could lead to very negative reputation, as with, for example, Warren St. Ledger's description of Eleanor Countess of Desmond as being as wicked a woman as ever was bred in Ireland, or Richard Bingham's depiction of Gráinne New as a notable traitoress and nurse to all rebellions in this province of Connacht. Now, that brings me segueing into the question of reportage, For Desmond and Niwoyla, it's the hostility of those who are reporting their actions, Warren St. Ledger, Richard Bingham, that proved toxic to their reputations. But the act of reporting uh, in itself could generate a reputation. As in the case of Elizabeth Avery, who came to, when she came to Dublin in 1651, she joined John Rogers's independent congregation based at Christchurch. So we also have an account of her life amongst the many accounts of their lives that were produced by that independent congregation. The gathered churches, of course, encouraging people to uh, frame their own life narrative in terms of the moments of salvation, of assurance of salvation. And I think that's a good example of that, the, the crossover between reportage and life writing or autobiography, what was to come to be autobiography. Um, the predicate, the justification for asserting the self, for uh, placing the self at the centre of a narrative, is reportage. It's reporting how I came to be saved. So that kind of crossover, I think, uh, becomes quite crucial to the very the very justifications for um asserting the self in this period. That was especially the case for those who were new to early modern Ireland who felt the need to explain to others what it was like. And we have various examples of this. Um, One of the best known probably is Anne Fanshawe uh, who came to Ireland for just under a year with her husband Richard, the royalist and diplomat. Um, And she wrote... uh, in 1676, kind of 20, 20, 25 years afterwards, she wrote a narrative which is an autobiography. It's also a biography of her husband. It's also a travel narrative because they travelled all across Europe, um, and it betrays this impulse toward reportage, toward establishing a reputation for oneself that's rooted in reportage as the excuse for asserting oneself. Um, she gives us very striking, uh, she records very striking anecdotes about her experiences as they crossed Ireland. Um, the insurrection in Cork in support of Parliament, uh, Lord Chancellor on untimely death, ultimately their flight across Ireland to Galway to escape Cromwell's forces. Um, But maybe a a less well-known example would be someone like Susan Montgomery, who arrived in Ulster in 1606 with her husband George, who had been appointed uh, Bishop of Derry, Riffaut and Clougher uh, the previous February. Now she arrived in Ulster not as the wife of a lowly New English settler, but as the spouse of a powerful official tasked with the redistribution of land. Nine of her letters home uh, survive, and home was South West England. Nine of her letters home survive in the correspondence relating to her brother-in-law John Willoughby of Paynbury, Devon, which is now held at Somerset Record Office. And actually, that's a really interesting treasure trove, um, the materials relating to him in Somerset Record Office, because lots and lots of uh, people emigrated from Southwest England at this time, the late 16th, early 17th centuries, to Ireland. John Willoughby was the local magnate, so lots of them were writing back to him, telling him about how they got on. In fact, there was a salmon sent to him, which tells you something about the speed of early modern travel um, from Powell Nalong, uh, which is where the Southwells lived in County Cork, um, to his home in Devon, with the promise of many more, if only he would support this fellow who's trying to set himself up as a planter. Anyway, so worth going to see the, the Willoughby papers in Somerset Record Office. Susan's letters chart the experiences of a settler wife, um, the extremes of optimism and anguish, and her persistent impulse to build community. Um, the first of her letters was, is available in a modern uh, edition, um, so it's, it's known. Um, it's dated the 8th of October 1606. And in it, she promotes her new home as an attractive destination for her extended family. She emphasises the English complexion of the town in order to render it appealing and familiar. So, she says, we are settled in the Derry, in Derry, in a very pretty little house, built after the English fashion. So, not exotic, not scary, not strange. It's fine for you all to come here and visit. It's built after the English fashion. I find Derry a better place than we thought we should, for there we find many of our country folks, both of gentlemen and gentlewomen, and as brave they go in their apparel as in England. So you don't have to tone down your dressing. Um, She was, however, cognizant of ethnic and cultural distinctions. Uh, She characterised the indigenous Irish people in opposition to these English where the English perform Anglicisation and civilisation through their clothing, through their company, which she describes, the Irish, unafraid embodied poor hygienic practices. The most, she says, that I do mislike is that the Irish doth often trouble our house, and many times they doth lend to us a louse, which makes me many times remember my daughter Jane, which told me that if I went into Ireland I should be full of life. I didn't want to draw too much attention to that quote, so it's not up on a slide. However, her experience at the plantation was not without suffering, despite this initial positive attitude, as is starkly evident from another letter to her sister and brother in law that stated the 23rd of July, but without a year subscribed. And the heartrending account of loneliness we get here stands in sharp contrast to this positive depiction of the settlement, uh, representing instead the lot of the lonely bishop's wife as a pretty desolate one. And in this case, reportage becomes complaint. Um, the function of the reportage that becomes complaint is to secure support, and it's actually to alter her husband's reputation. Um, she begins with a conventional assertion of her physical health and immediately contrasts that with her mental state. She says, Though I am much disc- discontented in mind, for that my lord makes so long stay in England, he hath almost made by a year since he went out of Ireland. So he's an important man. He's dumped her in Derry and left her there um, to travel uh, with his work. She complains, I have had his company but on three weeks since Candlemas was 12 month.'" And she represents her plight via a series of contrasts. We get a very gendered sense of physical vulnerability uh, by comparison to a neighbour who, she says, is happy that she hath her husband by her side always to defend her from her enemies. And you've got this sense of an insecure, then hostile environment that pervades the letter. She compares herself again. She says, Neither have I received any letters from him since the 2nd of February, yet hath he written to others divers times, since which I take unkindly at his hand. Uh, She's actually, it turns out, been quite restrained in writing to complain or to articulate her distress. The last letter she'd received from him was written five months, more than five months previously. And this, of course, amplifies the isolation. It also shows us that it's a very much a premeditated bid to alter his reputation. She's waited five months. This is almost the last resort to complain to her sister and in-laws. Um, and it's a very premeditated aim at her husband's uh, reputation. She does, I have one quote from this here. She then turns it inward. So she complains outwardly and turns it inward as she castigates herself for her gullibility. Um, She says, I was ready to come away, to go back to England. As my brother Alexander knows, there's a whole extended family based in England. Uh, In and around Ulster, I was ready to come away, as my brother Alexander knows. But I have many times been angry with myself since that I was such a fool to be ruled by him. He would needs persuade me that my lord was presently to come over. So the brother Alexander is constantly telling her he's on his way, he's on his way, he's on his way. And it is a startling, startlingly modern way of construing her own anguish. So she's angry with herself for being a fool to be ruled over by Alexander. Now, it's worth remembering, of course, that letters in this period are not private. This is a bid to alter his reputation. The letter is going to go to the sister and the brother-in-law. It's going to be read in the locality. Uh, and this is what she's doing to try and get her situation changed. But it's not as a lonely wife, nor as a whinging colonial settler, that she earned her own reputation in early modern Ireland. Um, the very fact of being this bishop's wife attracted unwanted attention. Her worst fears regarding the fragility of her situation were realised at the outbreak of Cahir O'Doherty's rebellion in April 1608. And I couldn't resist putting up the very well-known pamphlet about that rebellion with Cahir O'Doherty on the right there, his head on display. Uh, Failed rebellion, obviously. Which was driven in large part by Bishop Montgomery's policies with regard to land acquisition. Um, The bishop was in Dublin on business when O'Doherty and his army took the city of Derry, killing the British governor, Sir George Paulet, and taking the bishop's wife hostage, holding her at Burt Castle in Culmore. In June, so she was kidnapped in April, by June the British forces are arriving under the leadership of uh, Thomas Ridgway, then Treasurer of Ireland, later Earl of Londonderry, um, whose wife was friends with the poet Anne Southwell. Um, And what happened when he arrived was that the rebels or Doherty's crew, Montgomery's keepers, threatened the English forces that wherever their cannons made a breach in the castle walls, Mrs. Montgomery, quote, should be put into the breach wheresoever it was made. So this is intended to put them off. Ridgway, the gentleman, weighed his military objective against her life and plumped for the former saying, the king's honour was a fairer mark and to be handled more tenderly on their part than any woman in the world. Luckily for Montgomery, uh, her, her rebels were not so unchivalrous. Um, her defend- so they, they, the castle's defenders yielded pretty promptly. Um, she was listed as one of the items to be returned. She's one of the, the two things that were returned unto their owners by Ridgway. Um, So not perhaps the kind of reputation she might have wanted to establish. She ultimately stayed on in Ireland. She died in 1615 uh, in Meath, uh, to which Bishopbrook, her husband, had been transferred um, in 1609. Another example of the use of letters to report more widely on the personal and political situation, um, again with a view to securing support and in the process establishing a reputation, um, is Lettice Fitzgerald Baroness Offaly. Um, She was besieged at Geesehill Castle in King's County in late 1641 as part of the the 1641 Rising. She was besieged by the Dempsey's, to whom she was in fact related. Um, And what survive are their summonses and her siege letters in response to them, uh, which insist on her own loyalty to the king, on her neighbourly track record, and on her innocence from any military aggression. They appeal to religious conscience, and they draw on the trope of the vulnerable widow. But what Offaly did was she ensured maximum publicity by circulating these letters in the public domain. She wrote to the Lord Justices in Dublin, seeking help and enclosing a copy of the first letter from the Dempsey's, the first summons, along with her own defiant reply... This impressed them sufficiently that they circulated them on. They forwarded copies to the Lord Lieutenant in December 1641. She also wrote to James Butler, the Earl of Ormond, and of course, Commander of the King's Royalist Forces, in January 1642, again enclosing a copy of the first Dempsey Summons with her own reply. And this pair of letters ultimately reached a print audience in London. Um, The Dublin alderman and printer, William Bladen, whose son was among those defending her castle at Gies Hill, um, answered the contemporary demand for news from Ireland by writing a short account of the rebellion to which he suffixed both of her letters. And this is the title page there. You can see it's advertising even um, her so it's a true and exact relation of the chief passages in Ireland since the first rising of the rebels, sent by an alderman of Dublin to his son, uh, now resident in London, um, and as also a letter of the rebels, this is the Dempsey's summons letter, subscribed with diverse of their hands, written to the Lady Ophalia, uh, mother to the Lord Digby, to deliver on her castle of Guise Hill, she with the Lord Digby's children and others being therein, with her resolute and modest answer therein good reputation if you're a woman, resolute but modest. So she's using letters as well and reportage as a way of establishing uh, a reputation. And it was a reputation that survived. Um, these letters were to achieve fame for a generation. They were reprinted by Edmund Borlais uh, in his 1680 History of the execrable Irish Rebellion. And all of her siege letters were uh, copied by the local curate, Thomas Pickering. They survive in the 1641 depositions. And the fact that Pickering, right at the centre of his own deposition, went to the bother of transcribing carefully her siege letters goes to, I think, the wider impact that she was making and that sense of a wider local uh, reputation. Um, Reportage of another kind is equally useful in signalling the reputations of female versifiers. English models of poetry composition and coterie circulation were deftly exploited in Ireland by writers like Anne Southwell, who lived in Pallonong Castle, who would have owned the river whence the salmon for John Willoughby came. Um, And also Catherine Phillips, Phillips was exceptional, so I'm not going to spend much time talking about her. Um, she was extremely canny in her management of her reputation. Um, she used the opportunities presented to her by her year long sojourn at the Restoration Dublin Court to expand and diversify her social circle in order to move her literary career onto another level. But Gaelic culture was predominantly oral. Uh, we have a reportage to thank for what traces there are of habitual composition of rhyme by women and by the lower social classes. For example, in the list of poets, chroniclers or rhymers taken in Cork on the 7th of November 1584, two women are included. Mary Nee Donoghue, a she-bard, and Mary Nee Clancy, rhymer. Uh, now, of course, there's a clear distinction uh, made in medieval and early modern Irish culture between the filla. Uh, the professional poets um, of whom the olive is the most exalted, and the bard, uh, the lower order of itinerant poets to whom uh, Mary Donohu and Mary Clancy belonged. There is a single reference in the 15th century to a bon olive, a, a woman olive, um, and that's to Sive, daughter of William MacBranoyne, uh, and the wife of Mailean Oumaychunarae, who's described as the Bon Olive of Sheel Murriach Vic Ferguson, and a a nurse of all guests and strangers, and of all the learned men in Ireland. So the question of reputation then is heightened in Gaelic culture, um, in which the dominance of oral modes of transmission mitigated against the historical record. We depend largely on written documentation. Um, it was only later, as scribes of the 18th century turned to the more holistic preservation of the literary culture that was dying out, that the work of poets such as Cataline Dove came to be preserved in thunery, in family poem books, alongside that of their more educated elite male counterparts. Um, but I'd like to conclude with an example that opens up questions about the nature of surviving evidence and its impact on reputation, um, that of Moira Nihrulej, the Sappho of Munster. Um, And in doing so, I'm stretching the definition of early modern into the 18th century, but I think that's justifiable when you're talking about Gaelic culture, because so much of this Gaelic culture, certainly as it's concerned with the lower social orders and with women, really only starts preserving in scribal form any records in the 18th century. Um, But I realise it's certainly breaching the idea of Tudor and Stuart Ireland. But anyway... Um, The Sappho of Munster is uh, an extreme case because we have no surviving texts by her at all. So all we have is the reputation, and a nice reputation to be the Sappho of Munster. What we have are the reports of her contemporaries as evidence of her poetic achievements. Um, And I think this sharpens questions that I'm circling here about reputation and the burden of proof and the historical record. Nihulef's reputation was propagated by three contemporary male poets, Sean O'Muraku Norohinach, Sean Ó on Green, and Táig Gailho O'Sullivan. Now these three were prolific poets, they were based in Cork and Limerick. Um, Omoruku and Othuma regularly organized court aiksha or bardic courts, kind of poetic gatherings. So all three were immersed in Munster Gaelic poetic culture and they were well positioned, they were well p- positioned to comment on it. Each of them composed a poem lamenting the death of Morani and um, That they were intended as companion pieces is clear from the metre and the rhyme scheme. So all three are meant to go together. Um, what of the writerly reputation <clears throat> that's attested in these poems? Each is very precise in its literary praise of O Omerhu's poem, which is the first bullet point here, loads its subject as Sappho nun Nunmin Starha of Koad Why is acting sappho of meter's couplets sweet songs? Now the term coads there, the, the, the second last word in Irish, um, is very specific to, to elite Bardic culture, in fact. Um, it refers to um, the final couplet of the professional Bardic metre, the don dirch. So it's quite some highfalutin praise that she's getting here. O praises Moira for helping him to develop his own poetic skill, as well as for her intellectual accomplishments. And this is the second bullet point. He writes about an agus Moira an agus. which is translated as the fair one who solved for me dark riddles of verse making, Moira the stately one, weaver of wisdom and poet's learning. And Osu Levoyne also emphasises her poetic skill. Um, he focuses on its broader impact, and again he employs the term coad, the term for the, the final couplet in Thorn Diruch. on o núm rana Gus coad, darling of all in her keen crafting of polished verses. Moreover, according to all three, her death is mourned across Ireland. Now, filtering through this kind of evidence is tricky at the best of times, even if we did have examples of her poems. Um, As I'm sure everybody in the room knows, um, Bardic poetry has a tendency towards exaggeration. Um, What about the Sappho Association? How might we interpret that? Um, There is an important humanist dimension or dimension of humanist scholarship at play here. Um, Sappho was first published in the Greek uh, by uh, Henri Etienne in France in 1546. Um, The first translation into French followed ten years later in 1556. Um, And the continental circulation of Sappho's works in Greek, Latin and French throughout the 17th century would have, I think, been available to the literati of Gaelic-speaking Ireland. By the 18th century, it would have been available in English, a language which was by then making serious inroads. Um, We know from the work of Harriet Andreadis and Martha Rainbolt that the epithet Sappho-Sapphic, as applied to women writers of the 17th 17th and 18th centuries, could be a poisoned chalice. On the one hand, to be in the line of Sappho-connoted female poetic preeminence. On the other, it contained barbed assertions of sexual promiscuity, whether homosexual or heterosexual. It may be, then that Omuraku's description of Moira Nihr as "Alaagazoe is phoenix." a phoenix, a virgin and a swan," is designed to preempt the, the more pejorative associations. Uh, we have Tuam emphasising her annunciation to heaven and Sulevoin representing her as surpassing various Irish mythical leaders. And these may also be contrived to try and counter the pejorative implications of being described as sapphic or being like Sappho. So the question is then, of course, how seriously should we take these poems? Are they evidence of real poetic achievement, or should they be interpreted as a literary joke, a literary exercise? In the absence of corroborating texts attributed to the female poet, we might be inclined to think the latter. However, her name and surname are invoked in the poems by O'Muricu and Osu O'Sullivoin's concluding stanza gravely intones the date of her death, is trifehid or all 1701 and 60 as i calculate from the suffering of christ the divine king to the death of morani cruelier the specification then of the name and the date of death might argue against the possibility that this is a literary game invented uh, circ- centered around an invented figure but it's the impact of her death on the band of poets that most strongly suggests, I think, the sincerity of these elegies. The Koluther, or poetic company constructed through this trilogy of poems is echoed in their collective lamentation, as described by Othama, who says, "Dndoi uli is Kangler Kannglerkhlo Khedva, on Bosler Fudi win Grin Granna Sanor glera. That death snatched from the poetic company its keen engraver has left our senses bound in black knots has caused a cry of lamentation. So, how then do you substantiate a reputation when the reputation is all there is? Uh, It should probably be noted that Nihulach is not the only Munster writer who is known only by reputation. Uh, A study of poets who had lived in the barony of Mosquerie, County Cork, conducted in 1948, lists 17 poets for whom no work of poetry survives, of whom Nicolère is the only female. The question of reputation, um, then, especially as applied to those of the early modern period who were not movers and shakers, such as women... Um, turns out to lead inevitably towards contemplation of the nature of the survival of evidence and its interpretation. If we focus on reception rather than production, th- it offers us, I think, another way to frame this debate, where there might be a vacuum created by the lost text in which we might, I might yearn for proof of Moira Nicola's literary production, That might not matter at all for reception studies, where it's the quality of reception or the credibility of the reputation that count. From this perspective, the contexts for reception, the channels through which women's texts were read and their reputations disseminated, are central. The status of the sources shifts from reportage to being sites of investigation in themselves. They can yield information as to which networks and circumstances facilitated or encouraged authorial attributions to women, their preservation for posterity, and why. Rather than asking why these texts have gone missing, and the concomitant question of how that loss might be gendered, we could ask how the reputations of women writers have been preserved which channels have enabled the transmission of records of female authorship and reception of their writings. So, my final slide. It was a miserable evening on Thursday in Galway, and I couldn't resist uh, this bright blue summary picture of the Roman fama, uh, the goddess of fame, Um, taken from the University of Dresden with the lovely blue sky behind it. Um, So that maybe is a way of thinking about fame, reputation. How then do you drum up a reputation in early modern Ireland? Well, firstly, you use religion. Whether sincerely or insincerely, you use religion. That seems pretty clear. Secondly, you articulate experience. You engage in reportage. And, of course, the reportage, the examples I've been talking about here are all also about witnessing. This is one way to have your work preserved, to have your reputation preserved, if it's witnessing to something else, if it's reporting. So if it's witnessing to martyrdom, in the case of the various uh, Catholic religious writers, uh, if it's witnessing to the loneliness of colonial life, uh, in the case of Susan Montgomery, uh, if it's uh, witnessing in the sense of resistance, Resistance as a wife to the colonial experience, resistance as a besieged leader in the case of Lady Offaly, um, resistance as an independent-minded godly woman who wants to be of public service, as in the case of Dorothy Moore, or resistance in the sense of being a religious controversialist like Elizabeth Avery. The other advice is to get yourself a good social network. Whether it's Samuel Hartlip, who circulated the writings of Dorothy Moore and had some of them printed. Whether it's a Catholic religious order, because of your witnessing to martyrdom, they're going to preserve your work. Whether it's a, a print, a, an urban market for news as in the case of Lady Offaly, whether it's the family, as in the case of um, Susan Montgomery, who was writing home about her experiences, or whether it's the poetic gang, the coterie, as in the case of moira Cruelier. More importantly, maybe, why would you want to drum up a reputation in early modern Ireland? Why is it important? What's the value of a reputation? It's important to us as the trace of historical effect and affect. We might, from one perspective, view history as the study of figures who enjoyed uh, the study of historical figures who enjoyed reputations of one sort or another among their contemporaries. Current scholarship and the social environment demands that we engage in self promotion and publicise our research via social media and all the different ways that were being described earlier today. If we're measuring our own impact, shouldn't we also be measuring that of the historical figures we study? What about the question of intentionality Uh, and the the debate around early modern subjectivity? Uh, We know that there's various debates and controversies over the exact moment of the emergence of Subjectivity in the early modern period. So you've got the Burkhardian view that the Renaissance is all about the individual, the emergence of the moment of the individual. Um, You've got various studies that would argue that the rise of autobiography in the 17th century is all about the Protestant urge to self-reflection, to interior response. Maybe not everybody wanted to get noticed. Maybe not everybody wanted to develop a reputation. But those that we early modernists write about by those who did. So maybe the real question should be how to drum up a reputation among Irish early modernists. Thank you.